Chapter 4 of The Life of Thomas, Lord Cochrane, 10th Earl of Dundonald, Volume 1, by Henry Richard Fox Bourne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 4, 1815 to 1816. Released from imprisonment on Monday the 3rd of July, Lord Cochrane resumed his seat in the House of Commons on the evening of the same day, just in time to secure the defeat of a measure which was especially obnoxious to his radical friends. The Duke of Cumberland, having lately married a daughter of the Duke of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, it was proposed to augment his income of about £20,000 a year by a further pension of £6,000. A bill to that effect was brought in by Lord Castlereagh, and, after much sullen opposition from independent members, allowed a first reading by a majority of 17. On the second division, the majority was reduced to 12, the bill was brought on for the third reading on the 3rd of July, and would have passed through the House of Commons by the Speaker's casting vote, but for Lord Cochrane's sudden appearance. His vote secured a majority against it, and thereby it was finally overthrown. Great on the morrow were the rejoicings of his supporters. What a triumph, it was said in a friendly newspaper, is this to innocence. After being sentenced to the scandalous and disgraceful punishment of the pillory, after being confined in a loathsome dungeon, fined a thousand pounds in money to the king, disgracefully removed from that service in which he had attained such high honours, and rendered to his country such essential service, his astutchin kicked out of Westminster Abbey, his order of knighthood taken from him, in short, after having every possible indignity which the most malignant imagination could invent heaped upon him in every way, his single vote, on the very first day of his returning to his parliamentary duties, has been the means of obtaining a signal victory over those under whose persecution he had been so long suffering. The one victory upon which Lord Cochrane set his heart, however, the reversal of the unjust sentence passed upon him, and the consequent restoration of the honours and offices that were now doubly dear to him, he was not able to obtain. On the 6th of July, just before the prorogation of Parliament, he gave notice that, early in the next session, he should move for the appointment of a committee to inquire into the conduct of Lord Ellenborough and others towards him during the Stock Exchange trial. In arranging for this new effort at self-justification, he was partly occupied during the ensuing autumn and winter, and the question was brought prominently before the House of Commons in the spring of 1816, only to issue, however, in further injustice and disappointment. His purpose from the first was, of course, virtually the impeachment of Lord Ellenborough, and that object was yet more apparent from the altered shape which the question assumed when introduced in the new session. During the recess, Lord Cochrane, with the help of advisers, some of whom were more zealous than wise, William Cobbett being the chief, had prepared an elaborate series of charges of partiality, misrepresentation, injustice, and oppression against the Lord Chief Justice, and these were formally introduced to the House of Commons on the 5th of March. "'When I recollect,' says Lord Cochrane on that occasion, the imputations cast upon my character and circulated industriously previous to any legal proceedings, the conduct pursued at my trial, the verdict obtained, the ineffectual endeavours to procure a revision of my case in the Court of King's Bench, and the infamous sentence there pronounced, together with my expulsion from this house without being suffered to expose its injustice, when I call to mind my dismissal from a service in which I have spent the fairest portion of my life, at least without reproach, and my illegal and unmerited deprivation of the order of the bath, it is impossible to speak without emotion. 
I have but one course now left to pursue, namely, to show that the charge of the Lord Chief Justice, on which he directed the jury to decide, was not only unsupported by, but was in direct contradiction to, the evidence on which it professed to be founded. This is the best course to pursue both in justice to the learned judge and to myself. Either I am unfit to sit in this house, or the judge has no right to his place on the bench. I have courted investigation in every shape, and I trust that the learned lord will not shrink from it, or suffer his friends on the opposite side to evade the consideration of these charges by the previous question. Lord Cochrane thereupon tendered to the House thirteen charges against Lord Ellenborough, in which every point of importance in the Stock Exchange trial was minutely detailed and discussed, and these charges being read, therein occupying nearly three hours, were ordered to be printed. A fourteenth charge, bearing upon Lord Ellenborough's conduct subsequent to the trial, was introduced on the 29th of March, but this, as it included aspersions upon the character of another judge, Sir Simon Leblanc, was objected to and withdrawn. There was further discussion on the subject on the 1st and on the 29th of April, but not much was done until the 30th of April. On that evening, Lord Cochrane formally moved that his charges against Lord Ellenborough should be referred to a committee of the whole House, and that evidence in support of them should be heard at the bar. A lengthy discussion then ensued, the most notable speeches being made by the Solicitor-General, Sir Francis Burdett, and the Attorney-General. The Solicitor-General, of course, opposed the motion. Quote, As the House, on the one hand, he said, should jealously watch over the conduct of judges, so, on the other, it should protect them, when deserving of protection, not only as a debt of justice due to the judges, but as a debt due to justice herself, in order that the public confidence in the purity of the administration of our laws may not be disappointed, and that the course of that administration may continue the admiration of the world. For unless the judges are protected in the exercise of their functions, the public opinion of the excellence of our laws will be inevitably weakened, and to weaken public opinion is to weaken justice herself. That sort of argument, too frivolous and faulty, it might be supposed to influence any one, had weight with the House of Commons, to which it was addressed, and the Solicitor-General adduced much more of it. To him, the spotless character of Lord Ellenborough appeared to be an ample defence against Lord Cochrane's charges. Quote, never, he said, with the truthfulness that posterity can appreciate, never was there an individual at the bar or on the bench less liable to the imputation of corrupt motives, never was there one more remarkable for independence, I will say sturdy independence of character, than the noble and learned Lord. For twelve years he has presided on the bench with unsullied honour, displaying a perfect knowledge of the law, evincing as much legal knowledge as was ever amassed by any individual, and now, in the latter part of his life, when he has arrived at the highest dignity to which a man can arrive, by a promotion well earned at the bar and doubly well earned at the bench, we are told that he has sacrificed all his honours by acting from corrupt motives. End quote. Sir Francis Burdett replied effectively to the speeches of the Solicitor-General and others who sided with him and nobly defended his friend. He showed that the proposal to refuse investigation of this case, because it might weaken the cause of justice by making the conduct of the administrators of justice contemptible, was worse than frivolous. Quote, Such language, he averred, would operate against the investigation of any charges, whatever, against any judge, would indeed form a barrier against the exercise of the best privilege of this House, the privilege of inquiring into the conduct of the courts of justice. It would serve equally well to shelter even those judges who have been dragged from the bench for their misconduct. He then reviewed the incidents of the Stock Exchange trial, and urged that Lord Cochrane had good reason for bringing forward his charges. Quote, the question for the House to consider is, 
do these charges if admitted contain criminal matter for the consideration of the house i conceive that they do no doubt the judges who condemned russell and sydney were at the time spoken of as men of high character who could not be supposed to suffer any base motives to influence their conduct such arguments as these ought to be banished from this house it is our duty to look with constitutional suspicion and jealousy on the proceedings of the judges and when a grave charge is solemnly brought forward justice to the country as well as to the judge demands an inquiry into it that however was refused after a long speech from the attorney-general and an eloquent reply by lord cochrane the house divided on the motion eighty-nine members voted against it its only supporters were sir francis burdett and lord cochrane himself not only did the house refuse to listen to the allegations against lord ellenborough in the excess of its devotion to such law and such order as the government of the day appointed it even resolved that all the entries in its record of proceedings which referred to this subject should be expunged from the journals lord cochrane made no resistance to this further insult thrown upon him Quote, it gives me great satisfaction he said in the brief and dignified speech with which he closed the discussion to think that the vote which has been come to has been come to without any of my charges having been disproved whatever may be done with them now they will find their way to posterity and posterity will form a different judgment concerning them than that which has been adopted by this house so long as i have a seat in this house however i will continue to bring them forward year by year and time after time until i am allowed an opportunity of establishing the truth of my allegations other occupations prevented the full realisation of that purpose but to the end of his life lord cochrane used every occasion of asserting his innocence and courting a full investigation of all the incidents on which his assertion was based posterity as he truly prophesied has learned to endorse his judgment and therefore in the ensuing pages it will not be necessary to adduce from his letters and actions more than occasional illustrations of the temper which animated him throughout with reference to this heaviest of all his troubles by these troubles however even in the time of their greatest pressure he was not overcome and in the midst of them he found time and heart for active labour in the good work of various sorts that was always dear to him he used the advantages of his liberty in striving to perfect the invention of improved street lamps and lighting material that had occupied him while in prison and to procure their general adoption his place in parliament moreover all through the session of eighteen sixteen was employed not only in seeking justice for himself but also in furthering every project advanced for benefiting the community and checking the pernicious action of the government a zealous honest whig before he was now as zealous and as honest as ever in all his political conduct and his devotion to the best interests of the people was yet more apparent in his unflagging labours out of parliament for the public good his great abilities rendered all the more prominent by the cruel persecution to which he had been and still was subjected made him a leading champion of the people during the turmoil to which misgovernment at home and the distracted state of foreign politics gave a special stimulus in eighteen sixteen a long list might be made of the great meetings which he attended and took part in both among his own constituents of westminster and elsewhere for the consideration of popular grievances and their remedies one such meeting attended by henry bram and sir francis burdett among others was held in palace yard westminster on the first of march for the purpose of petitioning parliament against the renewal of the property tax and the maintenance of a standing army in time of peace lord cochrane the hero of the day on account of quote, the spirit of opposition which he had shown to the infringement of the constitution and the grievances of the people end quote, won for himself new favour by the boldness with which he denounced the policy of the government which boasting that it was ruining the french nation was at the same time 
bringing misery upon Englishmen by the excessive taxation and the reckless extravagance to which it resorted. A smaller but much more momentous meeting assembled at the City of London Tavern on the 29th of July under the auspices of the Association for the Relief of the Manufacturing and Labouring Poor, instigated in a spirit of praiseworthy charity by many of the most influential persons of the day, it was used by Lord Cochrane for the enforcement of the views as to public right and public duty and the mutual relations of the rich and the poor, which were forced upon him by his recent troubles and the relations in which he was at this time placed with some overzealous champions of popular reform and some unreasonable exponents of popular grievances that his conduct on this occasion was extravagant and even factious he afterwards heartily regretted yet as a memorable illustration of the power and earnestness with which he fought for what seemed to him to be right as well as with word as with sword its details as reported at the time may be here set forth at length reader's note quote begins about half-past one o'clock the duke of york entered and took the chair supported on his right by the duke of kent and on his left by the duke of cambridge he was accompanied on his entrance by the archbishop of canterbury the bishop of london the duke of rutland lord manvers the chancellor of the exchequer mr wilberforce and other distinguished individuals his royal highness the duke of york immediately proceeded to open the business of the day by observing that the present meeting had been called to consider and as far as possible to alleviate the present distress and sufferings of the labouring classes of the community these distresses were he feared too well known to all who heard him to require any description and all he had to add to the bare statement of them was the expression of his confidence that the liberality which had been so signally manifested in the course of foreign distress would not be found wanting when the direction of it was to be towards the comfort and relief of our own countrymen at home the duke of kent after alluding to the exertions of the committee of eighteen twelve observed that the immediate object was to raise a fund in the subsequent accumulation and management of which many ulterior arrangements might be projected and from which charity might soon emanate in a thousand directions he doubted not that every county and every town would be quick to imitate the example of the metropolis the association of eighteen twelve had at least the merit of producing this effect and had spread throughout the whole land that spirit of active benevolence which he was feebly invoking on this occasion he trusted that it was necessary for him to say but a little more to ensure the adoption of the resolution which he should have the honour to propose he confessed he felt gratified when he saw so great a concourse of his countrymen assembled together for such a purpose and additional gratification at seeing by whom they were supported he was sure then that he should not plead in vain to the national liberality but that the remedy would be promptly afforded to an evil which he trusted would be found but temporary if they should be so happy as to but succeed in discovering new sources of employment to supply the places of those channels which had been suddenly shut up he should indeed despond if we did not soon restore the country to that same flourishing condition which had long made her the envy of the world the royal duke then moved the first resolution as follows that the transition from a state of extensive warfare to a system of peace has occasioned a stagnation of employment and a revulsion of trade deeply affecting the situation of many parts of the community and producing many instances of great local distress the resolution was seconded by mr harman lord cochrane offered himself to the attention of the meeting but was for some time unable to proceed his voice being lost in the huzzas and hisses which his presence called forth silence being at length in some measure obtained his lordship said he would not have addressed the meeting but that having received a circular letter from the committee and feeling the importance of the subject he would have thought it a dereliction of his duty if he refrained from attending 
he rose thus early because the observations he had to submit would not be suitable if made when the other resolutions were put the first resolution was in his opinion founded on a gross fallacy and this was his reason for saying so the existing distresses could not be truly ascribed to any sudden transition from war to peace could it be pretended that it was peace which had occasioned the fall in the value of all agricultural produce or could any man venture to assert that the difficulties and sufferings of the manufacturing classes had any other cause than a prodigious and enormous burthen of taxation he was much gratified at seeing the royal duke so active in promoting a generous and laudable undertaking and he hoped he should not be understood as treating them with disrespect when he repeated that the resolution was founded on an entire fallacy but not to content himself with the mere assertion of his own belief he had brought official documents to prove the correctness of his statements and if he should be wrong he saw the chancellor of the exchequer near him who would have the opportunity of correcting his misrepresentation this brief statement he believed would be quite sufficient to show the financial situation of the country was such as to render any attempt of that meeting for the purpose of extending general relief utterly ineffectual the whole revenue of the kingdom was sixty two million two hundred and sixty seven four hundred and fifty pounds deducting the property tax and the revenue was thus expended the interest of the national debt including the interest of unfunded exchequer bills was upwards of forty million three hundred thousand pounds leaving to support the expenses of the government only about twenty two million pounds it was this enormous sum which now hung round our necks it was this which unnecessary extravagance had caused to increase from year to year to its present terrible amount which was the cause of all the evils of the country at this moment this taxation and extravagance for which the country was now suffering was supported and sanctioned by those who had derived and still derived large emoluments from them these were truths that people ought to know for they were the source of their burthens and the origin of all the mischief it was this profuse expenditure of the public money to say no worse of it that occasioned the present calamities it was the lavish expenditure to meet a compliant list of placemen that brought the country to its present state the deficiency in the revenue occasioned by the enormous interest of the national debt which ministers would have to supply would according to the present disbursements and receipts amount to eleven million five hundred and seventy eight thousand pounds unless that expenditure were reduced every such attempt as they were at present making would he was convinced prove abortive it was a mere topical application while a mortal distemper was raging within he had taken no notice in his estimate of the charges for sinecures or the bounties on exports and imports and yet the returns upon which he went exclusive of these charges showed a deficit for the ensuing year of three million five hundred thousand pounds were those who heard him prepared to make this good it was he believed undeniable that nothing could equalize our revenue with our expenditure but the putting down entirely the army and navy or the extinction of one half of the national debt but when he looked to the actual receipt of the last quarter and found a falling off of two million four hundred thousand pounds which with a corresponding decrease in the three succeeding quarters must create a new deficit of ten million pounds and added to the three million five hundred thousand pounds to which he had alluded would form a sum equal to the whole amount of the boasted sinking fund he felt that it was worse than trifling to suppose we could go on upon the present system were they prepared to make up this enormous deficiency a voice in the crowd cried yes he was happy to hear it he supposed it was some fundholder who answered and if any class could do so it was the fundholders they alone had the ability they alone now derived any returns from their property but even if they should be both able and willing still it would only remain 
a positive deficit made good, and no new facility would be derived for alleviating the existing burthens. The burthens and distresses must still remain what they were before. He spoke not now upon conjecture or loose calculation. He had brought his authority with him. These were the records from which he derived his statements, the official returns of the Treasury, and, if false, the Chancellor of the Exchequer was present to contradict them. He was glad, he confessed, to see him, for those who heard him were no doubt aware that it was not always in the House of Commons that a minister could discover the genuine sentiments of the people. If, therefore, no other person should move an amendment, he should feel it his duty to propose an omission of that part of the resolution which ascribed the distressed state of the country to the transition from a state of war to a state of peace, and to state the cause to be an enormous debt and a lavish expenditure. He had come there with the expectation of seeing the Duke of Rutland in the chair, and with some hope, as he took the lead upon this occasion, that it was his intention to surrender that sinecure of £9,000 a year, which he was now in the habit of putting in his pocket. He still trusted that all those who were present, and were also holders of sinecures, had it in their intention to sacrifice them to their liberality and their justice, and that they did not come there to aid the distresses of their country by paying half-crown per cent out of the hundreds which they took from it. If they did not, all he could say was that, to him, their pretended charity was little better than a fraud. Without, however, taking up any more of their time, he should move his amendment, with one additional observation, that it would be a disgrace to an enlightened meeting, and particularly to a meeting which might be considered as comprising an aggregate mass of the property and intellect of the country, to place a fallacy upon the record of their proceedings, and to build all their following resolutions upon an assertion which had no foundation in truth. He concluded by moving the following amendment to the first resolution, that the enormous load of the national debt, together with the large military establishment, and the profuse expenditure of public money, was the real cause of the present public distress. Mr. Wilberforce said he was himself too much of an Englishman, and had been too long engaged in political discussions, to feel any surprise that those who felt warmly on such a subject as the present should be anxious to give expression to their sentiments. But he could not help thinking that upon cool reflection the noble lord would be of the opinion that his own object would be better attained if he confined himself on this occasion to the distinct question under consideration. The noble lord said the country was in a crisis, and would they apply a mere topical remedy? But he might ask the noble lord if he would refuse to assuage the pain of a temporary distemper, because he had it not in his power at once to cure it radically. To him the existing distress appeared to be a distemper which rather called for immediate alleviation than for the speculative discussion of its causes. He thought the most charitable and manly course to be pursued, and that which must be most congenial to what he knew to be the noble lord's own charitable and manly disposition, was not to call upon the meeting to give any opinion upon a political question not under consideration, so as to divert them from pursuing it with diligence and confidence, but to postpone to a better opportunity a discussion of this nature, and to unite cordially in the general cause of finding employment and encouragement for our suffering fellow-citizens. If the noble lord would reflect upon the best mode of relieving the distress of the people, he would find his amendment not likely to have that tendency. Let him reserve all discussion on the question it involved, until he could do it without interrupting the stream of charity, and until he could enter upon it under fair and proper circumstances. He, Mr. Wilberforce, in a proper place, would not shirk from meeting the noble lord on that inquiry. He was twice as old in public life as the noble lord could pretend to be, and fully as independent, yet he would not have easily supposed any man, however young in politics, could have started such topics there. 
For his part, he should be sorry to take advantage of any credit which might be supposed to belong to him upon such an occasion as this to cast reproaches upon those who were concurring with him in a benevolent design. The meeting must, on the present occasion, feel how much indebted it stood to the royal personages for their attendance. They had come to listen to a discussion which had for its avowed and direct object the relief of the people, and they were in the room suddenly called upon to lay aside the practical part of their inquiry and to enter upon a distinct pursuit. Was such a course fair towards those illustrious individuals? Was it that which was likely to induce them to listen to proposals for their personal cooperation on occasions of benevolence, if they had no security against the occupation of their time for discussions of a different character? In conclusion, he entreated the noble lord, of whose real disposition to relieve the people of England he had no doubt, and whose motives he could justly appreciate, to withdraw his amendment. Lord Cochrane thanked the honourable gentleman for his personal civilities towards him, and said he would feel no hesitation in withdrawing his amendment if the honourable gentleman would state to the meeting, on his own personal veracity and honour, that he believed that the original resolution contained the true cause of the public distress, and the amendment the false one. If the honourable gentleman would say that, if any respectable man present would say it, he would be satisfied. Mr. Coates said he was entirely unconnected with the noble lord, and had never even had the honour of speaking to him. He agreed, however, with him in thinking that this was a moment when the eyes of the public ought to be open to their real situation. The amendment harmonised entirely with all the opinions which he had been able to form upon the subject. Mr. Wilberforce, to whose humane and benevolent character he was happy to pay his acknowledgments, had attempted to get rid of the noble lord's amendment by a sort of side-wind, but to his judgment there was no incompatibility between the object of the meeting and the amendment. There was nothing irrelevant in it. It naturally grew out of the course adopted by the chair, and in which a cause of the prevailing distress was distinctly specified. The question was, then, ought the resolutions go forth to the public with a falsehood upon the face of them? Ought they not state the true cause, since his royal highness, by mistake, had assigned a fallacious one. Mr. Wilberforce, with his usual ability, but in a manner that still marked its duplicity, he meant the word in no offensive sense, had asked, would he enter into a political discussion when we were called upon to extend relief? He begged to state that this was not the true question. It was whether they found all the future proceedings upon error and misstatement or upon incontrovertible facts. Another question was, would they be satisfied to patch up the wounds of the country for a short period, or seek to remedy the disease in its spring and in its sources, before it became still more alarming and incurable? The Duke of Kent said he had offered the resolution as it had been put into his hand, and if he had conceived there had been any mention of a course upon which difference of opinion could exist, he hoped they knew him sufficiently to believe that he should have been incapable of requiring their assent to it. He now, therefore, proposed an omission of all that part of the resolution which had any reference whatever to the cause of the present distress. He knew the noble lord well enough, and he had known him in early life, to be assured that he would agree with him, at least in a declaration as to the fact. Their common object, he believed, was to afford relief, and to admit its necessity without assigning either one cause or another. For his own part, it had not been his intention to attend a political discussion. He would never enter into the arena of politics with the noble lord, but he begged leave to say he considered himself as competent to plead the case of humanity, to advocate the interests of the weather-beaten sufferer, as the noble lord could be. There were, however, other times and places for men to engage in discussion of party politics, and he therefore implored the noble lord not to distract the attention of the meeting by introduction of these, and to keep solely in view that they had met as the friends of benevolence, not as the advocates of a party. His Royal Highness then proposed to alter the motion as follows— 
resolved that there do at this moment exist a stagnation of employment and a revulsion of trade deeply affecting the situation of many parts of the community and producing many instances of great local distress lord cochrane in reply stated that he had no wish to excite a difference of opinion on such an occasion and that after the alteration of the resolution nothing gave him more pleasure than the opportunity of withdrawing his amendment but in justification of what he had done it became necessary for him to say that he never would have thought of his amendment if it had not been for the assertion as to the cause of the existing distress he had no doubt in his mind as to the nature of that cause and he held it but just and honourable that if a cause must be assigned it should be the true one after returning thanks to mr wilberforce and the duke of kent for their expressions of personal civility the noble lord consented to withdraw his motion as far as he personally was concerned in it considerable opposition however from various parts of the hall was manifested to this mode of withdrawing amendment and a great deal of disturbance took place at last the resolution as altered by the duke of kent was put and carried the duke of cambridge in his speech which followed returned his warm thanks to the noble lord for the handsome manner in which he had withdrawn his amendment he moved the following resolution which was unanimously agreed to from the experienced generosity of the british nation it may be confidently expected that those who are able to afford the means of relief to their fellow-subjects will contribute their utmost endeavours to remedy or alleviate the sufferings of those who are particularly distressed the archbishop of canterbury moved the following resolution which was seconded and carried unanimously that although it is obviously impossible for any association of individuals to attempt a general relief of difficulties affecting so large a proportion of the public yet that it has been proved by the experience of this association that most important and extensive benefits may be derived from the cooperation and correspondence of a society in the metropolis encouraging the efforts of those benevolent individuals who may be disposed to associate themselves in the different districts for the relief of their several neighbourhoods the lord of rutland afterwards addressed the meeting and moved that a subscription be immediately opened and contributions generally solicited for carrying into effect the objects of this association which were seconded and agreed to the earl of manvers after stating that he had opposed the amendment of the noble lord lord cochrane solely from his anxiety to preserve the unanimity of the meeting as it was only by becoming unanimous that they could gain their object moved that subscribers of a hundred pounds and upwards be added to the committee of the association for the relief of the manufacturing and labouring poor that the committee have full power to dispose of the funds to be collected and to name subcommittees for correspondence the motion was seconded by t bell and unanimously carried the bishop of london proposed a vote of thanks to the duke of york which mr c barclay was about to second but lord cochrane again stepped forward and gained the attention of the meeting he repeated the explanation of his motives withdrawing his proposed amendment adding that he had no wish again to press the amendment upon the consideration of the meeting but he could not forbear from observing what would have been the fate of such a proposition if it had been brought forward in another place which he need not name for there instead of being requested to withdraw the proposition it would have been met with a direct negative or by the previous question in support of which no doubt a majority of the assembly miscalled the representatives of the people would have voted yet the manner in which this a meeting of the people would have decided was pretty obvious and hence it might be inferred how far the people concurred in sentiment and feeling with the house of commons that the proposed or any charitable subscription must be inadequate to relieve the actual distress of the country was a proposition which could not be disputed but yet he did not intend to oppose the subscription on the contrary he should give it every possible support in his power and it was he felt a consolation to them that there were still some persons in this country who could afford something to relieve the poor but he was afraid that neither the landowner nor the mercantile interest had the means of doing so for the former could obtain no rent and the latter no trade 
the only persons in fact who were able to assist the poor under present circumstances were the placemen the sinecurists and the fund holders who must give up at least half of their ill-gotten gains in order to effect the object with this impression fixed upon his mind it felt it his duty to propose an additional resolution that the ministers of the crown that the government of the country who wielded the power of parliament were alone competent to remove and to alleviate the national distress this indeed was evident from the statement of our financial situation which he had already made he called upon the chancellor of the exchequer who was present to contradict the statement if he could but the right honourable gentleman had felt it expedient not to utter one word as the meeting had witnessed yet from that statement it must be obvious as he had already observed that the military and naval situation of the country must be abandoned or at least half the national debt must be extinguished for the resources of the empire could not endure such burthens the noble lord concluded expressing his intention when the present resolutions were got over to move another stating the real cause of the present distress and that the chancellor of the exchequer and his majesty's ministers were alone capable of affording serious relief to the present distress mr barclay seconded the motion of the right reverend the bishop of london to which lord cochrane assured the meeting he entertained no objection great confusion prevailed in the meeting some crying for lord cochrane's motion while others were equally loud in testifying their anxiety for the vote of thanks the duke of kent then put the motion lord cochrane said his sole object was to have an opportunity of moving his resolution after the present was disposed of a person from a distant part of the room exclaimed that resolution shall not be put for it is a libel on the parliament several other remarks were made but they were generally unintelligible from the violent uproar and confusion that prevailed loud cries of put lord cochrane's motion first were mixed with the cry of chair chair the duke of kent said that he had attended this meeting with a view to assist in promoting an object of charity and he had no doubt that such was the intention of the noble lord cochrane of this he was sure from the noble lord's own declaration as well as from his knowledge of the noble lord's feelings the noble lord had indeed himself stated that he had no wish to introduce any political or to press any measure likely to interfere with the object of the meeting therefore he called upon the noble lord in consistency in politeness and urbanity not to urge any political principle and the noble lord must be aware that his proposition had a strong political tendency the proposition was indeed such that the noble lord must be aware that it was calculated to injure the subscription for those who were not of the noble lord's opinion in politics were but too likely to leave the room if that proposition were pressed to a vote and thus a material object of charity would suffer through a desire to urge a declaration of a mere political opinion lord cochrane disclaimed any wish to provoke political discussion he expressed his desire merely to declare a truth which no man could venture to dispute in any popular assembly in order that the chancellor of the exchequer and others present might have an opportunity of reporting to the government the decided sentiment and real feelings of the people the archbishop of canterbury begged leave to call back the attention of the meeting to the motion before it and which he had no doubt would be unanimously adopted this motion the noble prelate added was not intended in any degree to interfere with the motion of the noble lord amid loud cries of put lord cochrane's motion first for if the motion of thanks be disposed of the duke of york will leave the chair and the noble lord's motion will not be put at all the duke of kent declared that there could be no intention to get rid of the noble lord's motion by any side wind the motion of thanks was then passed while lord cochrane was engaged in writing his motion and the duke of york having bowed to the meeting immediately withdrew amidst loud hissings and cries of shame shame a trick a trick the duke of kent whose head was turned towards lord cochrane was much surprised and disappointed at discovering the absence of the chairman his royal highness addressing the meeting having he said pledged himself on proposing the last resolution that there was no intention of getting rid of lord cochrane's motion by any side wind felt himself in a very awkward predicament 
but he added i hope that as liberal englishmen you will consider my situation and who i am and that after my illustrious relatives have retired from the meeting you will not insist upon my taking the chair for the purpose of pressing the declaration of a political opinion but that you will commend my motives and do justice to those feelings which determine the propriety of my immediate departure his royal highness accordingly withdrew the majority of the meeting still remained calling for the nomination of another chairman and pressing the adoption of lord cochrane's motion but the noble lord also withdrew and the meeting separated Reader's note excerpt ends that meeting was memorable if lord cochrane's bearing at it was factious it must be remembered how greatly he had suffered and how earnestly he desired to save the people at large from the sufferings entailed upon them by the government which he and they had learned to regard with a common dislike by exposing what appeared to him and many others to be the hypocrisy of seeming philanthropists and showing what he deemed the only real cause and the only real remedy of the national distress he only acted as a brave and honest man and his work was appreciated by the masses in whose interest it was done a thrill of satisfaction ran through the land during the ensuing weeks and months congratulations were heaped upon him from all quarters and from nearly every class of society if he had lessened the resources of the association for the relief of the manufacturing and labouring poor he was thanked even for this since it was believed to be a good thing for shallow charity to be stayed in order that the cause of real justice might be promoted the thanks were all the heartier because of the fresh prosecution to which lord cochrane was subjected on account of his patriotism this persecution was in the shape of legal proceedings instituted against him by the marshal of the king's bench prison for his escape therefrom on the tenth of march eighteen fifteen the action had been formally commenced almost immediately after the alleged offence but on technical grounds and perhaps from the consciousness that he was already punished enough it was delayed for more than a year as the previous punishment however had not been enough to silence him the government determined to revive the old charge as a further act of vengeance at the special instigation of lord ellenborough as it was averred the prosecution had been renewed in may eighteen sixteen almost immediately after the rejection by the house of commons of lord cochrane's charges against the vindictive and unprincipled judge but the time was too far gone for trial to take place during the summer term it was again renewed and at length successfully directly after lord cochrane's fresh exhibition of his hostility to the government at the london tavern meeting the trial was at guildford on the seventeenth of august its history and issue may best be told in the words of an autobiographical fragment written by lord dundonald shortly before his death Quote, I was accompanied to Guildford, he said, by Sir Francis Burdett and several other leading inhabitants of Westminster, whose names are forgotten to me. I took neither counsel nor witness, having determined to rest my case on the point of law that no member of Parliament can be imprisoned, either for non-payment of a fine to the King, or for any other cause than treason or felony, or refusing to give security to keep the peace, my inference being that as I was illegally imprisoned, I had committed no illegality in escaping i read to the jury a general statement on which they unequivocally expressed their conviction that the trial had better not have been instituted for that the punishment already sustained was more than adequate to the offence alleged to have been committed the judge however interfered and told the jury that as i had admitted the escape in my statement they had no alternative but to bring in a verdict of guilty which was reluctantly done and judgment was deferred after the trial i returned to my house in hampshire and not hearing anything more of the affair naturally concluded that in the face of the opinion expressed by the jury the government would be ashamed to prosecute the matter further not liking however to trust to their mercy whilst their malevolence might be exercised at an inconvenient season or made to depend upon my political conduct i directed my attorney to inquire whether it was intended to put in execution the sentence at guildford 
The reply was that no steps had been taken, and the impression was that the government would be against further proceedings, lest they should tend to increase my popularity. Considering that this might be a feint to put me off guard, I went to London for the purpose of attending a large political meeting, in the conduct of which I participated. Shortly afterwards I received a summons to appear at Westminster Hall, and receive judgment on the verdict, the judgment being that I was condemned to pay a fine of a hundred pounds to the Crown. On my refusal to pay the fine, on the 21st of November, I was again taken into custody, I alleging that the sentence would amount to perpetual imprisonment, for that I would never pay a fine imposed for escaping from an illegal detention. On my being taken back to prison, however, a meeting of the electors of Westminster was held, at which it was determined that the amount of the fine should be paid by a penny subscription, no person being allowed to subscribe more. This plan was adopted in order that the public throughout the kingdom might have an opportunity of manifesting their disapprobation of the oppressive way in which I was being treated. Though I knew nothing of the intentions of the committee at the time, it was expected the subscription would amount to a much larger sum than the fine, and resolved that the surplus should be devoted to the reimbursement of the former fine of a thousand pounds, and of the expenses to which I had been put at the trial. Receiving houses were accordingly opened in the metropolis, and various other large towns, and the amount of the fine of a hundred pounds was speedily collected in London alone. Meanwhile, meetings were constantly being held to petition Parliament for reform, and at these my name and sufferings formed a prominent topic, so that the government would have been glad to be rid of me. After one of these meetings in Spaffields, for the purpose of requesting Sir Francis Burdett and myself to present a petition to Parliament, a serious riot took place in the city of London, in which a gentleman was shot by the military. The government, in alarm, lest the people should proceed to the king's bench and liberate me, did me the honour to send a company of infantry to guard me, the officers of the prison being ordered to admit no strangers whatever. The troops were further ordered to continue their attendance till I was released from custody. The subscription having been completed in pence, sent from all parts of the kingdom, my secretary, Mr. Jackson, applied to the master of the crown office to receive the amount of the fine in coppers. This was refused as not being a legal tender. The master, however, in token of the suffering to which I had so unworthily been subjected, said that, as payment of the fine in such a manner marked the sense of the people on my case, he would not oppose himself to the expression of public sentiment, but would take ten pounds of the sum in coppers. This was accordingly paid, and the remainder in notes and silver, which were given by various tradesmen in exchange for the coppers of the people, whose money was thus literally appropriated to the payment of the fine. Finding on my liberation whole chests filled with penny pieces, I wrote to the committee stating that sufficient had been collected. The reply was that the subscription should go on until the amount of the fine of a thousand pounds was paid in addition. The whole of the amount of the fine was thus realised with something beyond, I do not recollect how much, towards my law expenses, which had necessarily been excessive. Taking, however, the one thousand one hundred pounds paid in pence, this alone showed that two million six hundred and forty thousand persons, composing a very large portion of the adult population of the kingdom, sympathised with me. Not one of my persecutors could have elicited such an expression of public sympathy. The fine being thus paid, Lord Cochrane was released from the King's Bench Prison on the 7th of December, after a confinement of sixteen days, which was attended by all the wanton severity shown to him during the previous incarceration. Having been apprehended on a Thursday, he was, on his arrival at the King's Bench, placed in an unhealthy room, protected by an iron grating. In the evening, having complained of such unusual treatment, he was informed that it was under the express directions of the Marshal. Next day, being seriously unwell, a physician was sent to him, 
who reported that he was suffering from palpitation of the heart and other symptoms of dangerous excitement which made it necessary that he should be removed to better quarters accordingly worse quarters were found for him in a damp dark and very imperfectly ventilated room entirely devoid of furniture in the middle of the building steadfastly refusing to go there he was allowed to remain for that night in the room first assigned to him on saturday morning just as he was sitting down to breakfast he was ordered to proceed to his new dungeon again refusing his untasted breakfast was forcibly taken from him until he consented to eat it in the appointed place thither he accordingly went and there he was detained for the fortnight that passed before his liberation on the seventeenth of december an enthusiastic meeting of the citizens of westminster was held to congratulate lord cochrane upon his release we your lordship's constituents it was stated in an address adopted by the meeting beg leave on the present occasion to declare that after having had long and ample means for inquiry and reflection we remain in the full and entire conviction of the perfect innocence of your lordship of every part of the offence laid to your charge at the outset of that series of persecutions by which during the last three years of your life you have been incessantly harassed but indeed those persons must have very little knowledge of public affairs and particularly of your distinguished naval and political career who do not clearly perceive that all those persecutions have arisen from your public virtues and who are not well convinced that if you had not served the people by your exposure of the abuses in the prize courts by your endeavours to restore to the right owners the immense sums unjustly alienated under the names of droits of admiralty by your honest explanation of the causes which prevented the naval renown of your country being complete at basque roads and by having caused to be produced in parliament and published to the nation that memorable account of sinecures pensions and grants which so usefully enlightened the public you never would have been persecuted for a pretended fraud on the funds your lordship's constituents being thus fully sensible that you have suffered and are still suffering solely for their and their country's sake would deem themselves amongst the most ungrateful of mankind were they to neglect this occasion to tender you the most solemn assurances of their unabated attachment and their most resolute support and whilst they are endeavouring to discharge their duty towards your lordship they entertain the consoling reflection that the day is not distant when you will mainly assist in carrying forward that measure of radical parliamentary reform which alone can be a safeguard against all sorts of oppressions and especially oppressions under which your lordship has so long and so severely suffered readers note quote. to that honourable address an honourable reply was penned by lord cochrane on the twenty fourth of december and presented to the electors of westminster at another meeting assembled for the purpose on the first of january ensuing the direct persecution which began with the stock exchange trial and its antecedents was now at an end after three years of gross and untiring vindictiveness indirect persecution was to continue for more than thirty years end of chapter four recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia